Cosy Consulting Podcast. You can find us online anytime at CosyConsultingLLC.com. And now, here's your host, Sarah Cosy. Hello, hello, and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode, I want to have a part two of This is Not 2008. As I mentioned before, I could have sat in the chair recording all day. If I really wanted to chronicle every single similarity I saw to what we have brewing up right now, and juxtapose it with what brewed up back then, it would be an all-day task. And nobody wants to sit and listen to some 8- or 10-hour mega episode as my voice slowly cracks and I have to drink hot tea and eat throat lozenges. So, separating it out. So the first point that I want to cover today, the STEMI checks. You know, over the past couple of years, we've heard old Mitch McConnell, the turtle in particular, telling us that people are flush with cash. You still have people that somehow, like Jesus's miracle of the loaves and fishes, they have taken these 2020 stimulus checks and multiplied them across all the months. They are flush with cash. They're in a basement. They're crashing on somebody's couch and they have all of this money. And that is why, damn it, they don't want to go back to work. I think any of us with common sense can realize that's a load of BS. I don't personally see loads and loads and loads of people saying, you know what, I don't need a job right now because I am still living off of those 2020 stimulus checks. That 600 bucks here and 1200 bucks over there, that really did me solid. I am good for a good long while. As if they just won one of those outrageous lotteries where it was like $500 million. (laughs) Okay, so let's flash back in time. I want to read an article from PBS asking the question, five years later, what did the stimulus bill accomplish? This was published on February 17th of 2014, and it's in reference to the stimulus package that President Obama, then President Obama, signed into law or signed into effect soon after he took office in the early part of 2009. The costly $787 billion, I can't even hardly say it, the costly $787 billion spending bill that President Barack Obama signed into law soon after taking office boosted the economy and helped avoid another Great Depression. The White House said in a status report on Monday's fifth anniversary of the law's enactment, Republican leaders in Congress took note of the anniversary, too, but argued that the bill spent too much for too little in return. White House economic advisor Jason Furman said the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act made other targeted investments that will pay dividends for years to come. By itself, the stimulus bill saved or created an average of 1.6 million jobs a year for four years through the end of 2012, Furman said in a White House blog post. Half of the total fiscal support for the economy, or about $689 billion, from the Recovery Act and subsequent measures was in the form of tax cuts directed mostly at families. 
The remainder was spent on such things as rebuilding roads and bridges, preventing teacher layoffs, and providing temporary help for people who lost their jobs or needed other assistance because of the poor economy. The report said Recovery Act spending will have a positive effect on long-run growth, boost the economy's potential output, and ultimately offset much of the law's initial cost. More than 40,000 miles of roads and more than 2,700 bridges have been upgraded. Nearly 700 drinking water systems serving more than 48 million people have been brought into compliance with federal clean water standards, and high-speed Internet was introduced to about 20,000 community institutions. While these figures are substantial, they still nevertheless understate the full magnitude of the administration's response to the crisis, Furman wrote. He noted that the report focused solely on the effects of fiscal legislation and did not evaluate other administration policies that aided the recovery, such as stabilizing the financial system, rescuing the auto industry, and supporting the housing sector. Republicans were in less of a mood to celebrate. The stimulus has turned out to be a classic case of big promises and big spending with little results, House Speaker John Boehner, Republican from Ohio, said in a written statement. Five years and hundreds of billions of dollars later, millions of families are still asking, where are the jobs? Here we go. (laughs) Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky. That shows you how long some of these people just stay and stay and stay in politics. Argued that Obama could put the nation's finances on a more solid footing and create jobs by taking steps to roll back regulations and finally approve the Keystone XL pipeline project from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. Five years later, the stimulus is no success to celebrate, said McConnell. It is a tragedy to lament. Furman said the economy is undoubtedly in a stronger position because it has grown for 11 straight months, although not at a pace that would be considered robust. Businesses have also added 8.5 million jobs since early 2010. Obama initially sold the stimulus as an investment that would produce a dramatic decrease in unemployment that ultimately did not materialize. And this is PBS writing this article. I would definitely not say that I am reading this from a fringe news source or some far right news outlet. Okay, PBS is telling you we were sold this idea that the stimulus would help dramatically decrease unemployment, but that ultimately did not materialize looking at it five years later. Unemployment remains high at 6.6% in January, though it has fallen considerably since reaching double-digit highs early in Obama's administration. Some of the decline, however, is due to people dropping out of the workforce. People aren't considered unemployed if they aren't looking for work. I'm going to butt in and say, I've warned you about that as well. I talked many times last year about what I believe to be, in my opinion, the shenanigans and the chicanery going on in these jolts reports and these BLS statistics. If someone just says, screw it, and they give up, then they don't get counted anymore. If someone is considered to be a, quote, discouraged worker, I'll get into this more later, but if they're considered to be a discouraged worker and they just can't find anything, so they say, I'm going to give it a break and try to see if the market refreshes, then they aren't counted as unemployed. These numbers can be manipulated to suggest whatever they want John and Jane Q. Public to believe. So all of this money was spent, and even what I would consider to be probably a left-of-center news outlet is saying, hey, the dramatic decrease in unemployment that we were told was going to happen, kind of like 
didn't. And people who aren't considered unemployed anymore, if they quit looking, they're not being counted in the numbers. I mean, they're putting it out here on Front Street. While far more work remains to ensure that the economy provides opportunity for every American, there can be no question that President Obama's actions to date have laid the groundwork for stronger, more sustainable economic growth in the years ahead, Furman said. Obama planned to discuss the economy Tuesday at a suburban Washington distribution center for the Safeway grocery store chain. On Wednesday, VP Joe Biden will mark the Recovery Act's fifth anniversary during a visit to America's central port in Granite City, Illinois, end quote. Some pretty obvious parallels there. Some of the same people still on the scene now were on the scene then. Stimulus checks were involved. We were sold this bill of goods that this would really help. This was going to stimulate the economy. It was going to lower unemployment. And then... In the windup, did it? We also saw the data leaving out discouraged workers. I want to dive into this just a little bit more. Over on thebalancemoney.com, there's a pretty good definition of what are discouraged workers. Discouraged workers are those who want and are available to work but have dropped out of the labor force because they believe there aren't any jobs for them. While these people have looked for work within the past year, they are not officially classified as unemployed because they have not looked in the past four weeks. However, discouraged workers would take a job if it were offered, end quote. So if somebody simply takes a break, I mean, with everything that's gone on with the pandemic, it would be pretty easy to see how if someone had a very bad illness, influenza, RSV, the Rona, etc., They might need to take a month off from job hunting to convalesce. So then that person is just simply not counted anymore. (laughs) So many different ways to make it look like, oh, unemployment is only 3.5% or only 3.7%. Two open jobs for every one unemployed person. Why don't these people want to work? Think about all of that that was just absolutely shoved down our throat last year over and over and over again. Speaking of pandemics, Do you know that we also had a pandemic back then? Oh, yes, we did. Remember H1N1? The pandemic that went from January of 2009 until August of 2010? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, let's read a little snippet of information, which you can find on Wikipedia. Of course, I'll drop the link to it. And I want you to just think about how this information sounds in relation to the information that we've had ever since 2020. Controversy arose early on regarding the wide assortment of terms used by journalists, academics, and officials. Labels like H1N1 flu, swine flu, Mexican flu, and variations thereof were typical. Criticism centered on how these names may confuse or mislead the public. It was argued that the names were overly technical, for example, H1N1, incorrectly implying that the disease is caused by contact with pigs or pig products, or provoking stigmatization against certain communities, for example, Mexican. Some academics of the time asserted there is nothing wrong with such names, while research published years later in 2013 concluded that Mexican-Americans and Latino-Americans had indeed been stigmatized due to the frequent use of the term Mexican flu in the news media, end quote. (laughs) Remember all that stuff about Orange Man and the China virus? You know, he was always so... Uh, adamant that it needed to be called that. 
again, I say, if we were sitting and writing some kind of dystopian novel or some kind of satire, we couldn't do a better job. The way that history is repeating here, we couldn't make it up as an act of fiction any better than it's bearing out in reality. We just couldn't. Another similarity we find is this idea that the Fed needs to operate without any real oversight or control. Let us come in and clean up the mess. Let us do what we want to do, and everybody else just kind of get the hell out of our way. In fact, I'm recording this on Tuesday, ahead of the Thursday broadcast, and earlier today, a headline. I mean, it couldn't have been more perfectly timed. It was almost like a gift from the gods themselves. Earlier today, a headline popped up on CNBC. Powell stresses the need for Fed's political independence while tackling inflation. The key points read, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell noted that stabilizing prices requires making tough decisions that can be unpopular politically. In other remarks, the central bank leader said the Fed is not and will not be a climate policymaker. In the article we find, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell on Tuesday emphasized the need for the central bank to be free of political influence while it tackles persistently high inflation. In a speech delivered to Sweden's Riksbank, Powell noted that stabilizing prices requires making tough decisions that can be unpopular politically. Price stability is the bedrock of a healthy economy and provides the public with immeasurable benefits over time. But restoring price stability when inflation is high can require measures that are not popular in the short term as we raise interest rates to slow the economy, the chairman said in prepared remarks. The absence of direct political control over our decisions allows us to take these necessary measures without considering short-term political factors, he said, end quote. This is so very much like the, we're your daddy. We're going to give you your medicine. We know, okay, we know the medicine tastes yucky and you don't want it, but naughty, naughty, you still need to take it. We know what's better for you. We don't need any kind of restrictions. We don't need any kind of oversight. You need to just sit down and hush and let us manage all of this. It's so very patronizing and condescending. <laughs> but pff, twas ever thus. If we go all the way back, now some of you are going to be too young to remember Ralph Nader, but I try to be inclusive on this program. You know, I've told you before, I don't I, I, I avoid as much as I can getting political. I'm registered independent. That's how I like it. I don't really consider myself to be on the left or on the right. And I try to use resources that I believe to be speaking some amount of truth. And it doesn't matter to me where they're out on the spectrum. Going all the way back to 1975, Ralph Nader wrote an article, The Fed Needs Auditing. I mean, of course, that's not going to happen. But going all the way back to that point in time, somebody was out here saying, this doesn't even make any sense. And I want to read from that article for you now. Since other departments of government, including the Departments of Defense and Treasury and other agencies that regulate banks, have long been subject to the audit of the General Accounting Office, or GAS, the investigative arm of Congress, 
Why has the Federal Reserve been excluded? The answer is found in the secretive mixture of big power and big money of the banking Goliaths and their Federal Reserve servants that for decades have kept such matters away from both public and Congress in order to retain their unperturbed control. Bingo. <laughs> yeah, it, it can't get any plainer. And so in the same way that the Fed was knee-deep in this mess the last time around, the 08-09 debacle, here we go again. If we hop over to the Wikipedia page for Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve during the mess the last time around, here's what we find. As the Great Recession deepened, Bernanke oversaw some unorthodox measures. Under his guidance, the Fed lowered its funds interest rate from 5.25% to 0% within less than a year. When this was considered insufficient to abate the liquidity crisis, the Fed initiated quantitative easing, creating $1.3 trillion from November 2008 to June 2010, and using the created money to buy financial assets from banks and from the government, end quote. Does any of that sound familiar? This time around, we get the inflation crisis and the Fed trying to tell you all about quantitative tightening. Hey, we're going to have to raise these rates. Y'all going to have to rein everything in. Some of you are going to wind up unemployed. Some of you are going to see your wages stagnate, but we have to do this yet again and just sit down, shut up and take your medicine. So if we scroll down to another part on this Wikipedia, we read controversies as Federal Reserve Chairman. Bernanke has been subjected to criticism concerning the late 2000s financial crisis. According to the New York Times, Bernanke has been attacked for failing to foresee the financial crisis, for bailing out Wall Street, and most recently for injecting an additional $600 billion into the banking system to give the slow recovery a boost. If you care to go and read even more, then you will see information about the Merrill Lynch merger with the Bank of America, as well as the AIG bailout. I talked about that mess in the last episode. So again, we have this all-consuming presence of the Fed and how the Fed is promising that whatever decisions they make, they don't really need the oversight. They don't need to be transparent. We all just need to back the hell off and let them fix the mess. So I would ask you this question, how did that go the last time around? And how do you expect that it will play out this time around? Just some food for thought. I always say that I don't give advice. I don't tell anyone what to do. And I definitely don't tell you what to think. Go and read all of this information for yourself and calculate out your own opinion. I've said many times and will say it yet again, I think it is very important to have some kind of job loss survival plan, or if you work freelance, you own and operate your own business, do you have a nest egg? Do you have some alternate means? If the current way you have of making money is probably not going to be desirable in the event of a severe long-term downturn, do you have something else? Have you war this out? Have you thought about it? Really what I want to do in any of these broadcasts or any of the little mini books that I write, is try to stimulate your own line of thought. Get your creative juices going and hopefully get you pointed in a good direction. 
I understand that all of this can sound gloom and doom and apocalyptic and terrible. I don't think it's apocalyptic. I don't think Armageddon is right around the corner. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I think this is just yet another manufactured downturn, a manufactured crisis so that more of the elites and their buddies can take your stuff. The rich will get richer while the poor will get poorer and more and more people will get squeezed out of the middle class. I hope I'm wrong. I just remember how the movie played out the last time that I watched it. Stay safe, stay sane, and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a quick second to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. We'll see you next time. Thank you.